Would you please join me in standing out of readiness to hear and Christ speak to you through His Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. If you don't happen to have a Bible uh, with you this morning, we invite you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in a chair back nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 880. Anyone who preaches through the Synoptic Gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, or Luke, inevitably is going to come to the Olivet Discourse which scholars throughout the centuries have recognized is the most debated passage in all the Gospels. And we come to that passage this morning as we look at verses 5 through 38 of Luke 21. Last week we had one of the shortest texts in our studies of Luke's Gospel, and today I think we have the longest text in our studies of Luke's Gospel. So you'll want to strengthen your legs and stiffen your spine as I read it in just a second, not just because of its length, but also because it's full of warnings of judgment from our Lord Jesus Christ, piercing predictions about a destruction that is soon to come. So let us hear now as Christ speaks to us through his word. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. Then there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles." until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
Soon, as they come out in leaf, you will see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to hear him in the temple. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together once again. Father, we do pray for your blessing on our study of your word, even as we come to predictions of destruction and desolation, to a text that has confused and confounded many. We pray that by your spirit you would give us insight into the clarity of what we must know from the truth of what Jesus Christ said so many centuries ago. So give us minds that are open to the truth, hearts that are ready to respond in faith and repentance for me to have words that are full of clarity and courage. We pray in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in A.D. 66 that a conflict broke out between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people, that was little more than just the intensifying of hostilities that had been going on for quite a while between those two peoples. Uh, soon enough, a Roman general named Titus lay siege to Jerusalem. And what correspondingly came over the next three years, eventually in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, was horror and misery, terror and fright that Few people remember today, but at the time was a watchworld in the nations. Because what you had happen was, is people seeking refuge from the oncoming Roman armies flooding into the city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people. And it didn't take very long into the siege before it began to lay claim to numerous lives. Bodies were piled up in the streets, so much so that it quickly became difficult to know where the street ended and the bodies began. Every single day, the Roman armies would take some 500 people out of the city, 500 Jews out of the city, and crucify them in plain sight of all of those watching. The skeletal citizens, in order to survive, resorted to cannibalism. So was the carnage in and around Jerusalem at this time. And when the siege finally led to the sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, uh, one contemporary historian at that time said as many as 1.1 million Jews died in that conflict, which was, if you can understand, an astronomical and almost incomprehensible number of people for that day. And what we see in our text today is Jesus predicted decades before that it was all going to happen. Because what you need to think about related to this text, which is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, because we know from the other Gospels that Jesus spoke it when he's on the Mount of Olives looking down on the Temple Mount, is it's Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's simply what we're looking at this morning. Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, the city that for centuries, so many years, had been the epicenter of Jewish life. Jesus says in just a few decades' time, laid waste is what it's going to be. 
at the hands of Gentile armies overthrowing this center of Jewish spirituality and devotion because the kingdom is going to be ripped away from those that rejected the Son of Man and given to the Gentile nation, something we saw just a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 20, verse 16. And so it is a passage, as I said earlier, that is undoubtedly the most debated passage in all of the Gospels, of all of Jesus' teachings, the radical demands that he makes of his people. None is more disputed, none is more discussed, none is more even misunderstood, I think, than the Olivet Discourse. And so what I want to do to hopefully provide some clarity to what is an enormous amount of teaching that was delivered on that day of Passion Week so long ago is to go a little bit out of order from how we normally would walk through a text sequentially. Because first, I want to see in verses 5 through 7 the starting question. Okay? There's a question that initiates everything that Jesus says. But then we're going to skip down to verse 32 and see Jesus' startling declaration. Okay? If we get, I think, those two things in place then we're going to be able to understand what Jesus is all about in the remainder of the text, which I just want to walk through under two headings of signs of destruction and then signs of vindication. So maybe a little bit more teaching in the preaching uh, this morning and know that I'm not going to be able to answer, I'm sure, every question that you might have about this text. But hopefully I can kind of give you the, the basic and essential framework that you might be able to understand some more particular specifics and questions that you might have. So let's remember where we are in the story of Luke's Gospel. It's Tuesday still uh, of Passion Week, but we have finally made it to Tuesday evening in Passion Week. We know from last week, if you were with us, at the end of the day as he was walking out of the temple, uh, Jesus at the end of chapter 20, he, he sees these scribes. And he says, here is a model, here is a picture of of false piety. Uh, These men whose spirituality is little more than just devouring of widows. And then as we turn the page into chapter 21, he noticed a devoted widow uh, giving two lepta is what it was in the ancient world. One sixty-fourth of a day's wages. So essentially four or five hours worth of work she gave into the temple offering box. And Jesus says that she gave more than all the rest. Because as the text literally says at the end of verse 4 of chapter 21, she gave her life. And so as Jesus and his disciples make his way out of the temple, you'll notice in verse 5 that some of these disciples begin to talk about the beauty of the temple. Mark's gospel in chapter 13 says, One of the disciples said to Jesus, Look at these wonderful stones. Look at this wonderful building. And you do need to know something. I think we need to know something about the ancient temple and how it was this marvel of ancient architecture. By this point in its history, it was 43 years in the making. So it's the 43rd year of construction of the temple as Jesus is speaking here in Luke chapter 21. It's not going to become to completion until 30 years later in AD 63, just seven years before it was sacked when Rome descended upon Jerusalem. But it was in every way a marvel of the ancient world. If you were coming up to Jerusalem at the time, it would have seen as though, especially if the sunlight was out, you were walking almost into a city of gold because the great nine gates of the temple all laid out in gold, gold and silver all around the outsides, these great kind of images of of jeweled spectacles marking the way as well. And then if you took the temple stones themselves, they were like white as, as the most beautiful sand you could imagine, but they were enormous, some 67 feet in length were these stones, and they often commanded this incredible amount of attention. How could they do this in the ancient world? And that's what the disciples are doing. Look at this wonderful structure. Look at this amazing feat of architecture. And notice what Jesus says about those very stones in verse 6. 
As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And you do have to try to place yourself in something of a devoted Jew's mindset in hearing the Messiah say the temple is about to be destroyed. This was the epicenter of their entire life, a symbol of their chosen status as God's people. And here comes Jesus saying, not too long from now, it's going to all be raised to the ground. So naturally, they ask him a question. This is the starting question. Look at verse 7. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So students, if you look again at verse 6 and 7, you'll see this phrase that Jesus mentions twice in verse, I'm sorry, he mentions once in verse 6 and the disciples twice in verse 7, these things, which you just want to summarize as the destruction of the temple. So what they're saying is, when is the temple going to be destroyed and what signs will announce its coming destruction? Pretty simple the starting question. Well, let's complicate it a bit. Skip down to verse 32 with the startling declaration. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And of course, the disciples there on Mount Olivet at that time so many years ago wouldn't have seemed all that startling to them to hear this. Whenever Jesus said this generation, it was always referring to their lifetime. But as we're getting ready to see in just a minute, particularly in verses 25 through 28, it seems like Jesus has just talked about his second coming at the end of the age. And then here he is saying, wait, all you disciples in your lifetime are going to see all of this. And so what I'm essentially wanting to argue for this morning and help us see, and I think it does simplify the text so much, From verse 8 all the way through verse 32, Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the sacking of the temple. And we'll get in a few minutes to see why that might be more debated than you might realize. But at least initially, all the way through verse 24, it's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. The starting question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? What will be the sign of its destruction? The startling declaration, your generation in your lifetime disciples are going to see everything that I just talked about. So, what is he talking about? First, signs of destruction. He first says, there will be deception. Look at verse 8. See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So he's talking about this this reality of soon will be false Christs. There will be false messiahs. And I was reading this passage to my children earlier this week, and one night one of my sons, after reading verse 8, said, wait, There have been people that said they were Jesus and they really weren't Jesus. People actually do that. And of course, you might know history well enough to know it was not just in the first century that false Christs and messiahs appeared, saying, I am he, the time is at hand. Uh, We can, I'm sure, remember numerous examples, maybe in even our own lifetimes, of such false teachers coming and arriving. There will be deception, Jesus says. Secondly, he says there will be disruption. Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, Don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Maybe if you thought about it this way, what Jesus is doing here in the Olivet Discourse, it's like he's writing a book of judgment. 
And what he's saying is there are many chapters that you need to work your way through until you get to the climactic controversy, the climactic battle that's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not going to all come at once. These signs that I'm talking about are on-ramps, if you will, to what is the promised destruction and desolation that is on the way for Jerusalem. So there will be deception. There will be disruption. Thirdly, there will be persecution. If you just kind of work your way through verse 12 and following, he says all the way through verse 19, this persecution that's going to come on the disciples, that they're going to be even taken by family members, brothers, parents, and handed over to ruling authorities. Some of them are going to be killed, but they're not to fear, because notice verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The idea of perseverance through faith in Jesus Christ, endurance in Christ, is going to, of course, mean that their death in martyrdom isn't actually the end of the story because an eternal life of blessedness and righteousness awaits them in the presence of Jesus Christ. Okay, So there's going to be deception. There's going to be disruption. There's going to be persecution. And then fourthly, there will be desolation. There will be desolation. That's verses 20 through 24. Just notice verse 22. Jesus speaks of these days of, of judgment on Jerusalem as days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So he's saying, hey, you need to pay attention to these signs. And, and when you see them come, you'll see in verse 20 and 21, you need to get out of the city because you don't want to be there. And if you're not in the city, don't go into the city when the armies of the Gentiles surround Jerusalem. You need to get out of Dodge in order to save your life. And what's interesting is an ancient historian says that that exact same or that very thing did indeed happen. Some 1.1 million Jews die in the sacking of Jerusalem and all the Christians were gone from the city. What he said there in the first century recalling to mind the prediction and caution given them by Christ about 33 years and a half before those Jewish Christians fled to the mountains and escaped this destruction, i.e. they took Jesus at his word and ran away from the coming judgment. But he does have this mysterious statement. Notice verse 24. They will fall, that being this people. You see at the end of verse 3, there's wrath against this people. That's the Jewish nation that's rejected Jesus. They will fall by the edge of the sword and led captive among all nations in Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, if you pause right there, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we have no shortage of historical records saying this is exactly what happened when the Roman Gentile army surrounded Jerusalem and sacked the city. But what about that last phrase in verse 24? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it's like in scholarly debate. It's at this phrase, all the discussion pivots from everyone agrees to now everyone begins to disagree in the remainder of the text. Because what does it mean that Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Part of the difficulty in understanding what Jesus is after here is because this is a phrase he doesn't use anywhere else in the Gospels. What we do know from the totality of Scripture, whenever the Bible talks about times being fulfilled, that's just a simple way of saying in God's Word that God has the sovereign control over the events of history. So surely at a most basic level what he's saying is, the Gentile armies will trample Jerusalem until my purpose with those Gentiles is fulfilled, if that makes sense. 
The difficulty comes is when you compare it to a text in Romans chapter 11 that also uses this phrase of the time of the Gentiles to wonder if this is actually something that was completed in 70 AD or does it stretch all the way, this time of the Gentiles, does it stretch all the way to the end of the age when Christ returns? I'm pretty much persuaded that it's just saying there that basically Jerusalem is going to be trampled until the Romans have finally raised it to the ground, is I think what it's simply saying there. It could say something different, but that's the idea that Jesus has in mind from my perspective. So what do you have? You have signs of destruction. He's saying along the way, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, there's going to be deception, there's going to be disruption, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be desolation. And maybe a simple way to think about it is how every time that our nation elects a new president, that president is elected, he's inaugurated, he comes in, and numerous politicians and servants vacate their seats of power. Why? Because it's been nothing less than a regime change. And what Jesus is prophetically announcing in this text is nothing less than a regime change. These priestly and scribal institutions and establishment that held the sway of authority over God's people are suddenly going to give way to who? Jesus Christ, the true King of kings, the one that they despised, the one that they rejected. All authority, dominion, and power belong to Him. And His kingdom is going to go to the ends of the earth, no longer just located in one city, among one people. So these are the signs of destruction. But now we need to get to all the debated matters with signs of vindication in the remainder of the text. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a famous British philosopher in the early to mid 20th century and in 1927 he published a well-regarded and well-received essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And one of the reasons that he said he could never come to trust in Jesus Christ was because Jesus Christ was a false prophet. Now why would he say that? Well, he turned to the Olivet Discourse and said, do you notice Luke chapter 21, verses 27 and 28? Jesus says he's going to come back. Verse 32 says that coming back is going to happen in his disciples' lifetime. Bertrand Russell understandably says, well, that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back visibly upon the earth some decades after he died. So clearly he's just a normal human being who can err, maybe even worse. He's a false prophet. And so we're coming to this section that has tripped up not just unbelievers, but believers as well. What is Jesus on about here? So I want you to see what Jesus is saying in verse 25 through 28. Let's see if we can't simply understand in light of the rest of Scripture why Jesus is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. What you need to understand even from Mark's parallel, actually it's Matthew's parallel text in Matthew 24. It talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and then he says this word immediately. So chronologically in Matthew's mind, there's a link. Immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, this coming of the Son of Man is going to happen. Okay, so what might that look like? Well, first, if we're going to be able to understand what Jesus is on about here, you need to understand what Jesus mirrors. Look at verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. This idea of cosmic upheaval, this kind of upheaval in creation, that is pointing to this mass judgment that is falling upon the earth. And people say, well, when has that happened? Whereas there's darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. Well, again, 32 times in this text, Jesus says, you, Y-O-U. He's speaking to the disciples, not to you in the pew. And if they heard sun, moon, stars, cosmic upheaval, they would suddenly be like, hey, I have a category for that. 
I've read the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 34 talks about this cosmic upheaval which is announcing, it's this figurative, prophetic, apocalyptic way of announcing the destruction of a nation. In Isaiah's scroll, it's the nation of Babylon. You could turn to Joel chapter 2. Hey, we've heard that one too. It's cosmic upheaval. That's figuratively portraying the destruction of Egypt. They have an idea for this. So Jesus is kind of mirroring prophetic and apocalyptic language in what he's saying is going to happen. But more notably, notice what Jesus fulfills, not just what Jesus mirrors. Look at verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So here's where everybody just starts to diverge and disagree with each other. You might even do that with me, and that's just fine. But what you need to know Jesus is saying here is he's talking about a direct fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, which talked about the coming of the Son of Man. So you can write that down. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, a good Lord's Day afternoon activity would be to read those verses and then see which way the Son of Man is coming in that text. Because our evangelical minds are trained to think of verse 27 as he's coming down to earth in light of Daniel 7. But go read Daniel 7 and notice he's actually ascending up to heaven, to the ancient of days, to receive all authority, power, and dominion. This is what we would call theologically the session of Christ at the right hand of God, seated at his right hand with all authority and power. He's not coming down to earth. He's coming up to heaven. Now, let's complete the picture a little bit. That's not just what Jesus fulfills, what Jesus mirrors, but look at what he promises. Of course, in verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Interestingly enough, Jesus will use this exact same language in verse 27, just in 48 hours' time in Passion Week. So fast forward the story to Thursday night. That leads, of course, into Friday morning. He's in this sham trial where the religious leaders are trying to get him to say something that they could use as ammunition, as evidence for why he needs to be executed. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, skip over back to your left, one book, to Mark chapter 14. Verse 62, they're frustrated with Jesus, they're exasperated with Jesus on that Thursday night, they have all of this false testimony that's contradicting each other, and they finally just basically look at Jesus and say, come on, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now look what he says in Mark 14, 62, and see if this is not basically the exact same thing he just said in Luke 21, 27, I am the Christ, and you will what? See the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. So I want to ask the question, when did the Sanhedrin get to see that same sign that he's just predicted in Luke chapter 21? For my mind, what is the simplest and plainest reading of the text is what Jesus is using in verses 25 through 28 is this apocalyptic prophetic language that is common to Jewish culture at the time to say, when Rome falls upon Jerusalem and sacks the city and destroys the temple, that will be the sign of the Son of Man's vindication. That will be how the nation knows that in fact they had rejected the Son of Man, the Messiah, the true divine prophet whose name is Jesus Christ, who indeed is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning with all authority and power. I remember about, I think it was almost five years ago, preaching through the Gospel of Mark at a previous church, and I came to Mark 13, Olivet Discourse, preached it basically in the same way I'm doing it today. Someone came up to me afterwards, Jordan, are you telling me you don't believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? 
you know, you smile at such comments. <laughs> and you just say, no, of course I believe in that. I just don't think that's what Jesus is teaching in this passage. I think he's teaching about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, we have all kinds of other texts that talk about his second coming and glory that will bring the final judgment. I just don't think that's what he's teaching. And I confess to you that the majority of Christians and commentators disagree with what I've just told you in terms of my reading of the text. But every so often, God gives you a kindness. So earlier this week, I found out that one of my mentors, Sinclair Ferguson, has the same view of Luke 21. And I remember shouting across the office to Keisha, I'm not crazy. Dr. <laughs> Ferguson believes it too. And so whether or not you, of course, agree that all of this up to verse 32 and following most immediately applies to the disciples and their generation that would see the sacking of Jerusalem, whether or not you agree that's true, we can, of course, rest on the truth of what Jesus says is coming, judgment upon Jerusalem. He is coming again once at the end of the age to bring judgment upon the world. So how then are his disciples supposed to respond to all of these predictions of destruction? Well, you see in verse 29 through 31, he has this brief parable of the fig tree. You know, when the fig leaves show up, you know that the summer is near in the same way when you see these signs of destruction, these signs of vindication. You know that the destruction of Jerusalem is near, and he says all of these things are going to take place in your uh, generation. So the first thing that Jesus says to these disciples, what are they to do with all of this warning? Is that they should bear witness with confidence. They should bear witness with confidence. Look back at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I you just scan your eyes through the next couple of verses. Notice what he kind of amazingly says to the apostles. Don't meditate beforehand what you're going to say when you're persecuted. I will give you the word. I will give you the wisdom that is so deep, eloquent, great, powerful, and piercing that no one can stand against it. It's almost like what he's just given us in verse 13 through 18 is a trailer for the book of Acts, which Luke is getting ready to write, if you know that story of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles, a persecution, hardship, and affliction came to them, yet in their eloquent defense and preaching of Jesus Christ, no one could stand against it. He said, bear witness with confidence. Number two, they should watch with readiness. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I was taking my four-year-old Knox and putting him to his afternoon nap time, rest time, and uh, what he likes to do as you lay him in bed is he wants to listen to an audiobook of the Chronicles of Narnia. And Knox, in the way his mind works, he doesn't like to work sequentially through uh, the books. He just likes to pick out the best parts, you know. It's like the Knox playlist of the Chronicles of Narnia. And so <laughs> I told him, hey, what do you want to listen to today? He said, I want to listen to Peter and the Wolf. Uh, which that means he wants to listen to chapter 12 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Peter uh, fights against this kind of monstrous wolf, this captain of the guard of the White Witch. The wolf is attacking Peter's sisters. Uh, Peter summarily dispatches with the wolf, and then as the story continues, uh, Peter notices in the language of Lewis that Aslan is close at hand. And the first words from Aslan to Peter, after this kind of great feat of strength and bravery, he says, you forgot to wipe your sword. So Peter wipes his sword. Aslan, this great Lion King, comes and knights Peter. And he said, rise, Sir Peter Wolf's bane. And whatever happens, don't forget to wipe your sword. Well, that means, in just a few words, always be ready. This is what Jesus says. Notice his disciples in verse 34 through 36. Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. 
and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Readiness by watching and praying for the coming destruction that Jesus promised. They should bear witness with confidence. They should watch with readiness. But what about us? Living so many centuries later, what does this text have to say to you and me in here today? Well, just two more things and then we're done. First of all, we should hear Christ's warning with repentance. We should hear Christ's warning with repentance. So kids, I wonder if you've ever taken a telescope, you know, maybe looked up into the night sky to look at a planet or a star or a galaxy. Uh, You may not have realized it before, but what you're actually looking at is the telescopic lens. You're looking at the lens, but you're meant to look through it, right? Through it to something else. Something similar, I think, we're meant to do within this passage. That what you have here is kind of a microcosm of the final judgment and the coming of Jesus Christ that is going to arrive when he returns at the end of the age. If this is his judgment upon one city and one people for rejecting him, how much worse will his judgment be upon the world for their unbelief and spurning the truth of who he is? Is this the degree of punishment that falls upon a people because of their unbelief? How much worse will be the judgment that he brings at the end of the age when he comes for the last time? So I wonder what you then are doing with all of this knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people rejected Jesus, and so he rejected them in judgment. As we've said so often in our study of Luke's gospel, there are only two ways that you can ever respond to Jesus. You can receive him or reject him. And receiving him today means hearing his word of warning with repentance. But let me just give you one more as we finish. We should not just hear his warning with repentance, but also rest on his word of promise. Look at what he says in verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So an unbeliever like Bertrand Russell would have used this text to show Jesus' true identity as a false prophet. But we say no. It shows his true identity as a genuine prophet. He predicted so many decades before exactly what was going to happen. And so you ought to heed his word of warning. For judgment falls upon all those who reject Jesus Christ. But not just the word of warning. Uh, Hear his word of welcome, because he's also shown us the way, hasn't he, to escape the coming destruction and coming wrath. If you look back up at verse 20 and 21, particularly verse 21, the desolation is near. He tells those believers in the city to flee the city, to get outside of its gates. And in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what Jesus calls all of us to do. As Hebrews 13 says, we have a Savior who went outside the gates. And there he was crucified on a tree on Good Friday. And you likewise, to flee destruction, to flee the coming wrath and judgment upon sin, are to go outside the city to the hill called Calvary and bow before a Savior who is not just judge, who is not just king. Here is a Savior who is priest. Here is a Savior who is redeemer that delights to receive those who welcome him with faith and repentance. So yes, it's a, it's a prophecy, this whole text, I believe, about the destruction of Jerusalem. But as much to warn us, to say to us, as we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, for coming with him, 
His final judgment, coming with Him, His final redemption. Let us pray together. Now, Father, we are grateful that You are merciful and kind unto us in Jesus Christ, that in the midst of a truth that can be full of debate and discussion and difficulty to understand, You nonetheless show us the essential matters of what we need to know regarding life and salvation, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Redeemer that we are looking for, the Redeemer that we need in order that we might be brought into your family. And so help us, we pray, to indeed have courage in our witness, a readiness in our watch. I do help us to have repentance as we hear your warning, but also a faithful resting on your word, the word of promise of salvation that is given to sinners such as people like us. And so do great good to us, we pray, through this text. The ministry of Christ and his word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.